I'm Aaron Meyer, this week's producer, and this is the 199 Podcast. On this week's episode, the Chucker heads to Press Row with one of college basketball's premier writers, Dana O'Neill, senior writer at The Athletic. They dive right into her new book about the Big East. The Big East's influence can't be overstated. I think we all get caught up in the entertainment of it because it was so outlandish from the games on the court where there were fights and all kinds of bananas behavior and then the, the coaches on the sidelines, one was more of a caricature than the next. Her insider's perspective is an incredible listen, but be ready to dig out some post-holiday cash to pick up Dana's amazing book. Four hours with Lou Corneseca is just, it's a treat. And the details that he remembered about, like, going, being a JV baseball coach and recruiting Lou Alcindor over the fence at a JV baseball game. Like, what? Like, he remember, like, that kind of, that, that actually happened. Now, on to our interview with Dana O'Neill. Welcome to the 199 Podcast. I'm the Chucker, 199's resident historian, and we're going on press row with one of the college game's premier writers and Dana O'Neill, senior writer at The Athletic. Dana O'Neill, thanks for joining us here on the 199 Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, well, we're geeked to talk about it. So you're back covering live games now, right? And so you know, we had some normalcy restored with student sections and, and loud arenas and all that good stuff. So What's it been like for you kind of getting back into that familiar cadence after the strange circumstances of the last year? It's so nice because last year, the first live game I saw was at the first four of the NCAA tournament. I mean, it was crazy. And I felt like you try really hard to stay on top of everything, but you felt so disconnected to all of it because it was kind of all happening out there. You know what I mean? And And it just was difficult. So this year, just to go into an arena and be around the fans and the energy again just feels so nice. Now I will admit I had to get my travel legs back on. I'm a little bit like out of sorts with things like that, but um, that's, that's a, that's a hardship I'm willing to get over. And what's the most exciting game you've seen so far this year? Who Who's impressed? Who's, who's on your radar so far? Well, I was up at, at the Mohegan sun for that Purdue Villanova game in the Purdue, North Carolina. I mean, Purdue's just impressive um you know number one in the nation for a reason they've got all the parts their big men are ridiculous when you can bring trevion williams off the bench you're you're on to something and Jaden ivy is a distributor is such a weapon to have but you know i've seen um i was out of gonzaga in october for practice and despite their their loss the other night to alabama i still think that's a really good team i think villanova of course is a really good team you know the obvious candidates i i I've, you know i i imagine will kind of rise to the top here and, you know, we have some big storylines this season. You mentioned Gonzaga. They're going to chase their first yeah. national title, certainly in pole position to do that. You got NIL. You got Coach K's final season. I'm curious about kind of what are you most interested in following the season and what's kind of got your attention? Well, I think, it, you know, for me, it's always about the the game itself and, and who rises to the top and kind of the ebbs and flows of this season. You know, it, the drama always presents itself as a staff. We always talk about like, oh, what are we going to want to do in January and February? And we're always like, well, we, we don't know right now, but we'll, it'll show itself to us between now and then. You know, the season always has, um, I don't know, surprises in store for us. So that to me is part of it. I mean, the Mike Krzyzewski thing, obviously, I hope to be there in March when he plays his last game at home against North Carolina. Um, 
But that's oh, you and a lot of other people want to be there. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> I actually got my credential approved like in like October. I told them, can I come? Um, yeah. So, you know, that's just going to be, un- I don't even know what it's going to be, uh, honestly. But, you know, that's been, we've all written such stuff about Mike Krzyzewski. I'm not sure what there is to mine there anymore, to be honest with you. So um, it'll be interesting to see, though. I mean, his team is good enough to win a national title, too. So that could put a nice little bow on his career. Absolutely. You know, we've talked a lot about the present. Let's kind of jump back a little bit because just last month, your book on the Big East dropped. It's it's a real rich and entertaining read available just about everywhere, I'll note. So let's dive into that a little bit because there's been a lot that I think we've already been told about the Big East. You know, we have that great 30 for 30 ESPN mm-hmm. documentary. Why did you want to dig in here? What was your motivation and what unique kind of spin or, or unexplored or perhaps underexplored angle kind of were you looking to attack here? Well, I think, you know, as the title sort of suggests, I do believe that the Big East's influence, you know, can't be um, un- can't be overstated. I think we all get caught up in the entertainment of it because it was so outlandish from the games on the court where there were fights and all kinds of bananas behavior. And then the, the coaches on the sidelines, one was more of a caricature than the next. But the influence it had on college basketball from everything from a partnership with ESPN and getting games on television to the tournament in New York and how they, they built that and, and just sort of the growth of the game. I really do believe that their imprint was huge. And I think sometimes that does get lost in the shuffle. But, you know, for me, it was also this opportunity to just go get people to tell me really unbelievably hilarious and fun stories. <laughs> I mean, selfishly, you know, the, the league not only had great stories, it has great storytellers. And some of them were just, you can't believe it actually happened. And the way it all happened um, by you know Dave Gavitt's vision, it's unbelievable the impact it had um, so quickly when, when really it kind of came literally out of nowhere. Yeah, and you, it always makes a journalist's job easier when you have fascinating stories combined with fascinating storytellers. Mm-hmm. And so I want to get a sense, a little bit of inside baseball here, but a little bit of your process here. So how do you go about digging into this conference's fascinating history and kind of putting all this project together? That was hard, honestly, because, you know, to me, I'm a kind of a linear writer. I write top to bottom. I don't like to write in the middle. So I had to have sort of a process. You know, interview-wise, I started at the top. I had, you know, I went right to Mike Trangisi for like four and a half hours. You know, he's he is like the living, um, you know, historian of that league. Um, I went to John Thompson Jr. Immediately, immediately because – I, you know, I knew you couldn't tell a story without John Thompson Jr. I'm so grateful that I got to speak to him before he passed. And then I went to Lou Karnaseka quickly, too. And I'm lucky enough to talk to him before COVID shut us down. So you kind of get the big players in place. But the way I shaped it in my head was, you know, historically, it's easy to tell just, you know, a very year by year history of the league. But I wanted to make it interesting. So I was like, okay, well, what defines those years? Well, it's the big moment. So it's big game to big game to big game or moment to moment, whatever it might be. And that was sort of the way I wrote the arc of it. It was like, okay, let's get me from the Manly field house game to the league is, you know, the league's formation to this, to this. And that it actually, once I sat down and kind of identified the big moments, it, it made it a lot more manageable. And so I guess what were some of the more kind of surprising things you unearthed here or, or some of the more unexpected nuggets that came out of that research and those interviews you did? Yeah, there were a lot of little things. Like, I didn't realize that Holy Cross turned them down, which it's just like, if you think about it now, they're probably like, hmm, 
big mistake there. Um, you know, I did not realize that um, there was so much pushback early on against UConn. I mean, I'd heard that a little bit, but I didn't realize it was really people are pretty digging in against having UConn join the league. That surprised me. And is that a public private thing? Yeah, it was a public-private thing to par- in part, and um, frankly, you know, UConn at the time wasn't very good. They were playing the Yankee Conference. They weren't. They were just okay. Public-private, big state school, not in the cities. Like it was in stores in the middle of nowhere, um, and nobody saw what Gavitt saw, which was that you know this could be a really um, sleeping giant if if it gets its act together. So that surprised me. Um, and then early on, I wasn't as aware as how closely uh, Penn State came to kind of getting in in 1982, you know, Joe Paterno went to them and kind of foresaw things and Dave Gavitt did too. And he put it to a vote and five to three, three times they voted it down. And I talked to Jack Kaiser, the athletic director at St. John's, who was one of the naysayers. And he said, their basketball wasn't good enough. That's why we didn't admit them, which of course made sense in 1982. But now with football ruling the world, you wonder what might have been if they could have foreseen some things. So you know, those were sort of like the interesting, like historical nuggets that I wasn't aware of. And then it was just the crazy stories. I mean, one after the other of coaches chasing each other down in hallways at, at, at halftime and practically getting into fights in the, on the court. I mean, it was just like, are you kidding? That actually happened. <laughs> you know, you've covered a lot of college basketball. What, what do you think made the Big East, especially when you're talking about its heyday, you know, the, the mm-hmm. 80s, let's say. What, what do you think really differentiates that from maybe anything else you've encountered? I think it's a combination of, I, I, I use the word luck, and I hate to say that because it makes it sound like there wasn't any planning, but they got really lucky. I mean, they had great high school players coming out at the exact right time. Chris Mullen, Pearl Washington, you know, Patrick Ewing, of course. And then you combine them with these coaches who were fantastic Hall of Fame coaches, but they were early in their career. So they were kind of hungry to prove themselves. And you kind of put that product on the court and it was nasty. I think, I think one of the things that was really important to the early strength of the Big East was Dave Gavitt's message to the coach about, you guys can all fight behind closed doors, but you have to support this league publicly. We have to be in this together. Otherwise, we can't succeed. And the coaches all bought into that. So there was a collegiality as well as a rivalry within the league that really helped, I think, generate the competitiveness of it. I mean, they all wanted to beat the heck out of each other, but they also all wanted to see each other succeed. And you just had this perfect storm of great players, great coaches thrown on national television, which wasn't even a thing. I mean, it's hard for people who weren't around then to understand that television, not every game was televised, period. And games were televised very, very regionally. To put a Big East game on in the West Coast was a huge deal. You know, Mike Hopkins, a longtime associate coach, at Syracuse tells a story about pedaling home on his bike out in California to see big Monday games. You can't under, you can't overestimate how important that was to get that word out there. And it's interesting because ESPN, you're specifically speaking, mm-hmm. right? Your former employer and they kind of growing with the big East kind of together. Yep. I mean, how important was the big East to ESPN and ESPN to the big East? Vice versa. I mean, it's exactly that. It was a perfect relationship. You know, Mike Trangisi tells a story about going out into like a muddy field in in Bristol, Connecticut, into like a crummy trailer to go talk about getting a, a deal with them. And at the time, ESPN was desperate. Here they are with this all sports network and everyone thinks they're crazy. Like no one's going to watch that. That's a horrible idea. And they have no content. So here comes the Big E saying, hi, we're a league. We don't have any TV rights. You need content. Let's give it a shot. And because the games were so good, I mean, none of this works if 
if the players in the games aren't good, none of it. But because the product was so good, it just caught on like wildfire. And yeah, and that relationship, you know, then the big Monday and onward, I mean, they just worked together in lockstep and, and grew together. It was amazing how, how, again, I hate to use the word lucky, but how fortunate they were that it worked out that way. You know, I'm curious too about, you have programs like Villanova, Georgetown, um, these are national brands now, but back mm -hmm. in the 80s, they were known maybe for a little bit, but certainly not, I think, in California, right? Yep. How much do you think this kind of changed the trajectory of those schools, too? 100%. I mean, you know, Villanova, for a case, I mean, great example. I mean, they, they weren't a national program, um, certainly. You know, Seton Hall, when Seton Hall went to the Final Four in 1989, CBS went out and asked people in New Jersey, in New Jersey, where's Seton Hall? They had no idea. I mean, you know, so Seton Hall grows up because of the biggies. Providence gets in the Final Four. And yes, UConn, again, back to UConn, you know, Jim Calhoun tells a story about how he would say, we're the Yukon Huskies, and people thought it was Y-U-K-O-N, like Alaska. You're like, what, what, what are the Yukon Huskies? They had no idea what it was. So these schools all became national names. You know, Georgetown is out there at the, as a greatest villain or like the great urban street cred. Either way you pick it, everybody knew who Georgetown was, right? Everybody knew who Syracuse was. It changed everything for those schools. Yeah, and it's, I think, a textbook case of how sports – can be a marketing fuel, fuel yep. for, for the college. And so we, I think we've seen them in many other ways. And so, you know, with the Big East, you had so much kind of fuel, the Big East rise. You, you know, you mentioned stars like Mullen and Ewing and Pearl. You had coaches like Big John and Louie. We haven't talked about the Big East tournament in Madison, uh, Madison Square Garden. You got Big Monday on ESPN. All these things kind of conspire together and create the rise. I'm curious about what you, especially now that you've done all this research, all this interview, what do you think is maybe an underrated aspect of its history or maybe something we don't know as much about, but should? Um, you know, I'm, I'm not sure if it's underrated, um, but I do think the move to New York, I mean, maybe it's, you know, people understand that, but I don't think people really understand why that mattered and how risky it was. I mean, that league well, was- through that, yeah. Yeah, they're formed in 1979. Like, so they're, they're nothing prior to it. And, the, and, and you have to understand, like, East Coast basketball at the time was in this big umbrella called the ECAC. So everyone kind of made their own schedules, and it was really messy, really, really messy. There was no rhyme or reason, and coaches loved it because they could schedule whoever they wanted. But in terms of appeal, it kind of it really watered down East Coast basketball's appeal. It really wasn't a big deal. The ACC was getting a lot of attention taking all the kids from the Northeast because they were much more established and organized. And so along comes this league, which helps organize the teams. But then to move it into New York, you know, for Dave Gavitt to say, okay, I think we're good enough to take on Madison Square Garden, which used to be a mecca for college basketball, but then they had all the point shaving scandals in New York. And so college basketball sort of lost its footing a little bit in New York City and at the Garden, which is interesting too. But he understood that, okay, it's the garden, it's New York, it's the media market, it's the place that people still recognize. And, you know, he literally told Mike Trangisi that the day that Georgetown signed uh, Patrick Ewing, we can go to New York now. We're going to be good enough because we have a star that will carry us there. Because the first few years they bounced around from Hartford to Syracuse to Providence. They did well in their attendance. But I remember them, you know, they were nervous. They were like, are we going to actually sell tickets for this thing? And lo and behold, it's a sellout. I mean, and, and then off we go. And that became such an event. The Big East tournament in New York for 
really its entirety was such an event. You know, I remember fans would choose to go to New York rather than go to the first round of the NCAA tournament because they knew the quality of the games was guaranteed. Whereas in the first round, you might get a, a dud. So they would go to New York um, and it became such an event um, that it really, it really changed everything. I think that and the one versus two game, the quote sweater game between uh, Syracuse and, or excuse me, is between St. John's and uh, Georgetown because it was like this national primetime game, one versus two, St. John's versus Georgetown, Mullen and Ewing. It was all the hype and the buildup build that you could possibly have. The game actually, you know, Georgetown won pretty handily, but still that helps too. Like that was a moment, a Big East moment that everyone saw. So those kinds of combinations I think happened a lot. Yeah, and you know, we talked about this conference really being one of characters and big personalities and stars and and many of them still with us and some sad, sadly not, of course, Big John being one of the prominent ones. You know, throughout your career, of course, you've crossed paths with many of these individuals. I'm curious about all the interviews you conducted for this book. I'm curious about the one that really sticks out, maybe someone who was more open or insightful or emotional than maybe you anticipated. Yeah, I mean, I guess there's a couple. Um, you know, four hours with Luke Karnaseka is just it's a treat. And, and his, I mean, it is, and he's, his mind is so sharp. Um, and the details that he remembered about like going, being a JV baseball coach and recruiting Lou Alcindor over the fence at a JV baseball game. Like what? Like he remember like that kind of, that, that actually happened. Um, or brokering a deal to come back as the St. John's coach with Jack Kaiser in a car outside of the building. I mean, like they, like he had gone to the ABA and decided to come back. Um, you know, I thought he was such a, a treat to just be able to to talk to him and, and spend time with him because, you know, obviously I couldn't, Rolly's not here anymore. And Big John, I only talked to briefly, unfortunately. But, you know, I was impressed to, um, you know, Jim Beheim is still very emotional and very attached to this league. Like he was very vocal when they moved to the ACC that he wasn't thrilled and he understands it and he gets it. And he's competed, but he's still really emotionally attached to the Big East, which you would think after all these years, you might be like over it. Um, I, you know, I'm trying to think just all, it, the neat part was about this book was every single person you asked to speak to, it wasn't like anybody, I was like, no, everyone was like, please, let's let's just tell some stories. Um, you know, I got Andrew Gaze calling me on a Zoom call from Australia. He was excited to get on the phone call. Michael Graham, whose career at, at Georgetown ended, I mean, it didn't end well. He got kicked off the team and he was such a controversial figure. He was so, um, so excited to talk to me. Harold Jensen still cries, still cries to this day about how his Villanova's teammates in 1985 supported him throughout the arc of his career when they, he couldn't get on in a game because he wasn't good enough and all, you know, he just couldn't get it together. And then all of a sudden the national championship comes along and he's a star. He was crying on the phone to me about that. So there was a lot. I mean, there's such an attachment, I think, not just to us fans of the Big East, but to those who participated in it. There's such an attachment and an affinity to that league, which I don't I don't think you see that anymore. I mean, people are true to their school, right? They're like, I'm a Syracuse person. I love my Syracuse. I love my Georgetown. But the affinity to that league is really, really unique. I don't think we will ever experience that again. And, you know, I, I think you're exactly right. I think there is such a strong um, connections to the Big East as the conference. And so when you had its kind of demise from what it was, um, and, 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 you know, the current Big East has a lot of the same team, yep. but it doesn't, I think, have the same resonance as it did in the 80s, um, although it's still a great basketball league. 
I'm curious about what some guys, uh, some of the, some of the folks you interviewed, what do they have to say about just the, the breakup of the Big East and and kind of, I mean, you know, Coach Beheim, you know, that that's a football move, but this was a conference made on the shoulders and backs yep. of basketball players and, yeah, and they, post ups and, and breakaways. And so, um, talk about just kind of the demise of the Big East as we yeah. kind of know it. There's a lot of hard feelings still. I mean, Mike Trangisi is still pretty pretty ticked off, to be honest with you. And not, you know, most with Boston College with Pitt, I would say more than Syracuse. I think he understood what Syracuse was jumping along to, but that Boston College left and Pitt left in the way they kind of did it in an underhanded way. He's still, you know, he still likes to put a little bit of an Italian hex on those schools if you talk to him <laughs> enough. Um, and, you know, John Thompson, I think his line was, they took our song and changed it. You know, he knew how great that thing was. And he was really disappointed that they couldn't keep it together. When Mike Trangisi was hired as the commissioner, he kind of summoned Mike to DC to have this sort of head to head at a, at a restaurant in the middle of nowhere, DC, because he wanted to make sure that Mike's allegiance was to basketball first, which it was. And it's not like Mike didn't try to keep it together. He did. Everyone did. But there were some really hard feelings that still exist. Even if people understand it from a business model, they do. It hurt because it was really good and everyone knew how good it was. Like everyone understood what they were ruining, even if they couldn't stop it from being ruined. And so it's there's such nostalgia for it. You know, I talked to Rick Pitino and he loves to talk about the Big East. I mean, he's won national champions and done all kinds of things, right? And up high and low. Um, and he still holds a soft spot in his heart for the Big East. So does Billy Donovan, who same thing. You know, it's just amazing. And they really are understanding but rueful that it ended yeah i would imagine for so many there's so much intensity among those coaches and players but i think they kind of probably felt that they were dancing partners though yeah and, they were. And it felt like someone walked away and said i'm not dancing with you ever again so and, and that's what it was and you know the, like i said the way they did it i mean vince nicastro who is an assistant uh, associate commissioner now at the league said he learned about uh, some of the schools leaving on the ticker i mean that like there was it wasn't handled well in some circumstances and that certainly doesn't help but yeah it was sort of like why aren't we good enough why can't we make this work and so there were hard feelings definitely um about it and when syracuse left i mean there was just devastation i remember that happening being like wait what like everyone was like oh my gosh like oh my gosh and like i said to this day jim Beheim. He supports the ACC. He gets it. He's rebuilt rivalries with, with some schools, but he still misses the Big East. And I wonder as well, in any of your reporting, if there was kind of, I guess, frustration or regret for a league that started in basketball, that's made its life in basketball, that it kind of got in bed with football. And I don't think they could have foreseen just how big football became right? and how much that would move everything. But what kind of can you, what, what did you hear about that? Yeah, I mean, that's the interesting part. You know, when, when Penn State came sniffing around in the 80s, that, that was sort of Gavitt's reason for listening. He, you know, he, could he have foreseen what happened? Absolutely not. But he saw with Syracuse and Boston College and Pitt um, and to it later, you know, UConn, with some schools having football and not, he saw the friction that that could create, that it's, it could get messy if not everybody was answering to the same people. So he saw that early. And um, yeah, I think there was a lot of, worry at that point that it could happen but you know nobody could foresee that and so then when it swelled right you know they added west virginia and they added miami for a little while and virginia tech it was still a pretty good basketball league um but basketball sort of became along for the ride and that was the problem the money just the money was the money was the money and 
And then I think I give the league credit because, um, you know, for a while there, they were just trying to add teams to survive. And it got, I mean, I think Tulane was a member for five minutes and Memphis was 10 minutes and Temple was in and out and never played. It was such a mess. And when they finally said, stop, we're not doing this anymore. It was the right decision to make because they were going to bastardize what made the league special. But yeah, there was definitely, um, definitely a lot of like, they can't see the writing entirely on the wall. There was certainly an idea of foreboding. Like if we don't get everybody aligned, how are we going to keep this together? Because the money is the money. Like if football's making this much money and they have to share it with Villanova and Georgetown and Georgetown and Villanova aren't sharing in the same vein, people get ticked off. <laughs> Absolutely. We've talked about the rise of the Big East and the fall of the Big East. Uh, I want to know about why do you think the the Big East story is an important one to share? Yeah, and like I said, you know, I, I think that the influence that the league had on so many things that we take for granted these days um, in terms of like TV and all of that stuff. So the history of what they created, I think, was really important. I also think it's, you know, I hate to sound, I don't know, Pollyanna, but it's nice to remember a time when when things were a little different. I mean, money did not, like you, you look through the contracts, these guys weren't making any money. The TV contracts were laughable, you know, but it was about something bigger than all of that. And we've certainly lost that in college sports, I think, entirely. Um, and I think it's nice to kind of go back and remember that you can still create something based on something more than just cash and make it really pow powerful and influential and special. Um, and I really do think, too, the one thing that the new version of the Big East has done right, that that collegiality that was so important, I think they've kept that among those coaches. And I think that's rare. Um, so, yeah, I just thought it's a combination of nostalgia slash recognizing what that league did for college basketball. I mean, it put college basketball on the map. Look, we all know college basketball is a gigantic entity now and moneymaker at the NCAA, but it really wasn't. It really wasn't until yeah. that, that league started. I mean, that 85 Final Four was, you know, Villanova winning it, obviously became this great Cinderella story, but that's when people started to pay attention, when Georgetown got good and, Georgetown was evil and everyone hated Georgetown. And that was that was because of the Big East. You know, when you think about these seismic shifts in college basketball, these things that really that have pushed it to where it is today, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of people will point to Bird and Magic in 79. Sure. The Big East needs to be in that conversation, which, you know, starts around the same time, but really hits its apex just a few years after that. It's just so influential and in kind of driving where everything is today. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, 79 was, you know, bird magic, the year the league formed. And like I said, you know, you have Georgetown in a final four, Georgetown winning a national championship, Georgetown back in the final four. So all of a sudden everybody knows who Georgetown is. And then, you know, it's St. John's with Mullen. Everybody knows who they are. And then Villanova, lo and behold, comes along and wins when they're not supposed to. So all of a sudden everybody knows who Villanova is. And then 87, it's Providence. And 89, it's uh, Seton Hall. And every team got a turn. And I think that that's what gave it such resonance nationally. But it also just, I, I don't know, it just made the game interesting. Those games were so entertaining that people wanted to watch. Yeah, and it's, it's an interesting book. And again, it's called The Big East Inside the Most Entertaining and Influential Conference in College Basketball History. Phenomenally entertaining and compelling read. Dana, I, I hope before we sign off, I could just use you for tap into some of these great experiences you have covering college hoops for all these years and indulge us a bit with some some quick hit style questions, okay? Sure, absolutely. Uh, you've had a long career covering. So I'm curious about a college basketball player or team you found particularly fascinating. Oh, wow. There's been a million of them. Uh, let me think about this for a little while. Uh, 
off the top of my head. I mean, so I was at Kemba Walker's entire like Big East tournament run all the way to the national championship. And it was at the time I was working for ESPN and after we were doing videos after every game, like as reporters. So literally after every game, I had to talk to Kemba. So I talked to Kemba a lot um, that year. And I don't think, you know, Jerry McNamara did something great, obviously, but I don't know if I've ever seen a, a player elevate a team like Kemba Walker did that year in, my, in the history of my time. I mean, that was just, amazing to see what he was able to do and, and the way he kept his wits about him but man i'm sure i'm, I'm missing about a million players no and question. teams that i can't think of off the top of my head i mean there have been so so many that you know i i'm sure i'm missing a bunch all right your favorite arena to visit and cover a game so i'm a philly girl <laughs> my favorite arena to visit is always going to be the palestra um unfortunately it's not like it used to be when you get games in there but back in the day when villanova and saint joe split the house for a big five game and both of them you know when jameer nelson was there and it was in its heyday it was just unbelievable so that's always my favorite uh, place to visit similarly i love to see a game at kansas um you know when rock they get chalk. the rock chalk jag hawk going and because to me that because to me allen field house is a bigger version of the palestra so it looks the same um so i think that's a, a a good one you know cameron is ridiculous it's just like you know kids are like literally leaning on your back as you're trying to write your story because they're the cameron crazies are right at your back so there's a million of them but i'm always i'm always palestra first <laughs> makes sense given your roots there so the most memorable game you ever covered so I used to always say, because I'm old enough to have been right out of college and having covered Christian Leitner's shot against Kentucky. I was two years out of college sitting behind the Duke bench having no clue what I was doing. happened in Philadelphia. Happened in Philadelphia. I was working in a paper in Trenton, New Jersey at the time. And I, th I think they just threw me a bone. Like, would you like to go cover that? Go ahead. I had no idea what I was doing. I'd be terrified to read the story I wrote. I'm sure it was awful. Um, so that was always my go-to moment. Until, of course, Chris Jenkins hits a three-point buzzer beater to win a national championship. I mean, I had, and that one, because I covered Villanova from the day Jay Wright got hired at the Philadelphia Daily News. So I had known that program inside out and upside down. So that added to that moment. I mean, look, it was a national championship game winning buzzer beat three. It was just like, I do remember being paralyzed afterwards, like thinking, I should be able to write the, the ultimate game story in the history of mankind because I should know this team better than anybody. And I was like, I don't even know where to go. I was beside myself as a reporter, but that was just ridiculous. But I've been at so many great games. I mean, and, I, and how can I not say the six overtime game? I mean, I was at the six overtime game. Like that was exhausting. <laughs> it's the only no, word that comes to mind. So, you, know, you mentioned some games we've had the great privilege of speaking with. We spoke with Mike Waters, uh, who covered mm -hmm. Syracuse for many years about the um, – the six overtime game. We've talked with Aminu Timberlake on the podcast, yep. who was you know the the the, the, the target of Christian Leitner's shoe in that game. Yeah, you mentioned some stories. Um, I'm curious about the college basketball story you wish you could rewrite. <laughs> How long do you have? <laughs> I mean, like I said, I I, I would be terrified to to read the 1992 um, final that that re recap. But I do remember the six overtime game. I remember, first of all, I got into the arena in my defense. I got into the arena that day at 1030 in the morning because I covered all, I was working at ESPN. So I was covering all of the games and I had already written, like, I think I had written off the noon game, off the 230 game. I don't think I wrote off the six o'clock game. So I was there for a while. I was kind of cooked. Um, and I remember 
leaving, waking up the next morning, and I think I might have just been exhausted, but practically in tears, convinced that I had not come close to doing that game justice. And I really was eating myself up about it. And I called a good friend of mine, Pat Forty, and I was like beside myself. And he was like, nobody could do that game. Like, whatever, like move along. Like you were filing at four o'clock in the morning and that game, nobody could possibly write that game right. But I do remember wishing like, I wish I did something. I don't know what I wish I had done. I wish I had done something in that game. Yeah, you know, I think the intro for that is, I won't do this game justice. Right, exactly. <laughs> and, I'll, and I will tell you, in 1992, when I walked into the press room, I'll never forget this. Um, we walked into the press room after, you know, Leitner hits the shot and Bob Ryan, Bob Ryan of the Boston Globe is in front of, of me. And he had been lovely to me because he's from Trenton. So he had introduced himself and he turned around and he goes, we're not worthy of writing this game. And I'm thinking, well, if he's not worthy. Surely I should just leave. <laughs> like, oh, like, don't even open the laptop. Like, just move along. Interesting. Uh, let's just finish up with this. Um, we've seen a lot of changes in college basketball. We talked about one of the big ones here with the Big East um, and kind of it kind of morphing. Um What's the most frustrating or disappointing change you've seen in college basketball over your time covering it? Um, boy, um, I think it would be just sort of how college basketball has two things. How college basketball has, well, there, there's two things, but both the same result, has been treated as sort of um, an understudy. So number one, it's been in the understudy for football, right? Drug along at football's whims you know great rivalries have been torn asunder because of football you know kansas for a while didn't think they were going to have a conference a few years ago like what like what yeah, what are we going to have UCF visiting kansas so right exactly right exactly like kansas missouri no longer a regular thing like so many of that so i always that and then and then the other thing that always bugs me now is how we constantly project college basketball players for what they're going to be in the nba rather than sitting down and enjoying college basketball for what it is right now. Like you don't watch college football games and listen to people talk about their NFL, you know, futures. They talk about the game in front of them. They appreciate it for what it is. And I feel like because of the nature of one and done and because of the nature of guys going early in the draft, I get it. I understand it. There's this constant projection, a projection, a projection. It's like, well, can we just enjoy them for what they are right now? You know, I don't think one and done is, the greatest thing in the history of mankind, but I also don't fault college basketball for that. That's an NBA rule. It's not a college basketball rule. So I don't, I personally think kids should be able to go wherever they want to go, whenever they want to go there. If they want to go pro, God bless. Um, I don't think it's helped the game. I'm kind of a little bit excited maybe that NIL might offer kids enough money to stick around. I, I actually see the positivity in that, that maybe guys will want to stay a little bit, like or at least come to college for a year and give it a go if they can make some money. So I think I think it's just that sort of push-pull that sort of put college basketball in, I don't know, just sort of in a box that it probably doesn't deserve to be in. I think it deserves to be appreciated on its own merits. Yeah, well, great thoughts from a great chronicler of the game, Dana. So we, we're going to let you get on with your day, and, and you've been beyond gracious with your time, and we appreciate you sharing your time and stories with us on the 1999 Podcast. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to the 199 podcast. If you haven't already subscribed to the podcast, make sure you do. And while you're at it, leave us a rating or review. Five stars only, like the basketball camp. We also have links to all of 199 social media so you never miss a release. Until next time, 